you know, it's amazing. Whenever we get together uh, for camp, I don't know about you, but camp is just an amazing time of the year. It's my, it's my, favorite, it's my favorite week of the year. Uh, you know, camp is an amazing time where you can, you, you have a blast, right? I mean, we get together, we're going to have a blast. Even later on tonight, we're going to play some games. We're going to have a great time. You get to build in these uh, friendships with other people. Right, I've been I've been a part of student camps for a long time. I mean, like when I was a student, when I was in middle school and in high school, uh, I went to student camp every year. And then when I came here at Central, my first time here was uh, my first time here was actually a revive weekend. It was a fall retreat. Uh, it had kind of like a camp feel. But then we used to go to Fuge Camp every year. And then now this is our fourth year doing staycation. And camp is an amazing time of year. And I'll tell you that for many, this is going to be a week where you will grow immensely in your relationship with the Lord. And for some of you, this is going to be a week where you're going to look back on the decisions that you've made this week, maybe years in the future. You'll look back on this week as the, as the week that you made commitments and decisions that changed your life for eternity. And I'm going to ask just a quick, uh, briefly if, uh, if I can get the lights to, to stop moving. It's, it's more of a me problem. I'm just kind of, I get easily distracted, Okay. This is going to be a week for some of you where you're going to look back and you're going to see this is the week that there was decisions that you made that changed your life for eternity. And while I have a lot of incredible memories when it comes to camp, I think the thing that stands out to me the most is actually not necessarily camp, but it's the weeks that come after camp. And if you've been to camp, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're here, you have this amazing time, you're on the mountaintop, right? You have this Jesus high moment. And then the next thing you know, you, you know, school starts to get close. And that, hold on, and that mountaintop experience just seems to kind of go away. And I know I've said this many times, I'm sure you have probably thought this or said this before, but he's like, man, I just wish that that camp feeling, that camp feeling that I have with my relationship with God, I just wish that it would last all year. And I just wish that it would last all year. And I'm telling you guys, I see it happen every year. You have students that they have these powerfully you know, intimate moments with, with Jesus. They, they're, 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 you know, they're pouring out their heart. They're confessing their sins. And, and they're saying, man, like, I don't want my life to be the same when I go home after this week. I want to be different. I want to, I want to be committed to the things of Jesus. And, and in those moments, like, I believe that they're genuine. I believe that students are genuine in those moments. Like, I, I, I believe it with all my heart, but the question we have to ask ourselves is if it's so genuine, why does it fade for so many people? Why is it that there are times where it seems like you have people who get saved every year and it's the same people? Why, and maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you have these, you, there's people who, they, they, their, their relationship with God is, is, is a series of adrenaline shots that they get once a summer. And you just try to get a, enough of a spiritual experience to last you to the next one. I believe the reason that this is, is because a lot of people leave camp with a lot of desire, but no game plan. They leave camp with a lot of desire, but no game, with no game plan. You see, in sports, every athlete has a desire to win. But not every athlete has the game plan to win. 
And that is often the difference between the two. And this week, I want to ensure you that if you are willing, if you're willing to let down walls, if you're willing to lean into what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in you and through you, I can promise you that you will encounter God in a powerful way. And I can also promise you that you will be challenged. But the question that you have to, or the thing that's the most important is not how will you feel about what God shows you this week? The question is, what will you do with it? Anybody can feel something. The question is, what will you do with what God shows you? There's a poem that I've heard several times. Maybe you've heard poems or you've heard things like it, but I think it's incredibly powerful. It's called The Dash by Linda Ellis. I want to read just the first half of it to you. She says, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted first came the date of birth, and spoke the second date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between the years. For that dash represents all the time that they spent life on earth. And now only those who loved them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. See, I believe every person in this room wants to live a life that makes a difference. You see, when you die, your entire life will be represented by the date of birth, the date that you died, and that dash in between. And in that dash represents every birthday you ever had, every friendship you've ever made, the family that you help establish and the legacy that you leave behind. And I want you guys to know that a dash that is well spent does not happen by accident. A living a life that makes a difference doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't, you don't just fall into it. And a lot of people are just kind of thinking that, man, if I just kind of like, hey, I'm just going to kind of float by in life, and eventually, you know what, I'll just find out my life made a difference, and I'm going to let you know that you are wrong. I believe wholeheartedly that everyone in here wants to live a life that makes a difference. Not only that, I believe that everyone in this room wants to live a life that makes an eternal difference. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what does the game plan look like of a life that makes an eternal difference? We're in Acts chapter four tonight. And what I believe we see in this short interaction with John and Peter is I believe we see the first few pieces of the game plan of a life that makes an eternal difference. Now, it's important for us, before we kind of dive into our passage, we gotta get a little bit of context, right? The church in Acts is, is, is fairly young. In the first few chapters of Acts, chapter one, we have the ascension of Jesus, Jesus ascending to the Father and telling his disciples to go. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And no, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And, and it just, he goes on. And then in chapter two, we see the, the church begin with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and the church is born and 3,000 people get saved. And at this point in chapter, 
And so in chapter three, what we see is actually there's a a story that happens in chapter three that is really gonna launch us into chapter four. But what we see at this point in the church is that it is still relatively small, confined only to the city of Jerusalem, but it is very vibrant and it is growing. In Acts chapter three, John and Peter are walking into the temple and they see a lame man. This is a man who he could not walk. He had been this way since he was born. And he was asking for money at the gate of the temple and he, and he, and he looks up at them and he sees them and he asks for alms and Peter looks at them, he looks at the man and he says, gold and silver I do not have. Acts 3, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, and he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man immediately gets up to his feet, walks around. The passage tells us that he is leaping about, praising God throughout the temple. And then seeing this incredible miracle, all the people are amazed, and Peter sees this as an opportunity to do what ironically he has grown very comfortable doing at this point. That is to proclaim the gospel. And that's what's going to lead us into Acts chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you were with us last year at Staycation, hey, if you were with us last year at Staycation, this is a very, this is a very different Peter. Now we'll get to that in a little bit, but Peter has just proclaimed the gospel to the crowds in the temple, and we see something here in our first point, is that if you want to make a live, you want to live a life that makes an eternal difference for the kingdom of God and for the people around you, the very first piece of your game plan must be gospel proclamation. If you want to live a life that makes a difference, make your life's single aim to make Jesus known to as many people as possible. Nothing else matters. Peter and John just healed this man. This man was paralyzed since birth. Later in the passage, we'll see that this man was 40 years old. This man has gone 40 years of his life experiencing nothing but shame 
disappointment, discouragement, feeling worthless, feeling helpless, nothing he could do about it. And they, in a moment, changed his life. You want to talk about making a difference. But what's even more amazing than that is that the most profound impact that Peter and John had was not in the physical healing of this man, but it was in the spiritual salvation of the people who heard the gospel. That's the most astounding miracle in this entire story. And because the reason is this, because while this man can now walk, eventually he will die. And there is no amount of walking, running, or leaping that can earn someone a right standing before God. And what, do good, what, do, what good does it do for this man to have new legs if those new legs just lead him to hell? John knew this, Peter knew this, and you and I need to know this as well. You feed a hungry person, they will be hungry again. You heal a sick person, and they will be sick again. But you lead someone to the feet of Jesus, and I promise you, they will never be the same. They will never be the same. Now, I want to be very clear. This does not mean that we do not do good things for people. This doesn't mean that we don't make an effort to, to feed the hungry and, and, to, and to take care of the sick. And of course we do that. But what we need to keep in mind while we're doing those things is that the thing that these people need the most is the thing that matters the most, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has made a way for sinners like you and me to be made right with him and to spend eternity with him. Peter and John went all in to make Jesus known. And I want you guys to know something. If you're gonna go all in for something in your life, go all in for something that has no expiration date. Why live your life for something that will die with you? Live your life, pour yourself out, give every ounce that you have to the thing that will not just change one person's life for eternity, but can change thousands. Peter and John went all in for this cause and it led them to being arrested. Now, I'm not gonna focus too much on that point tonight about them being arrested because we're gonna really focus on that tomorrow night. But I want you to see something. I want you to see what do Peter and John do in response to being arrested? What do they do in response to this? The first thing is that they are asked, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now they're held overnight, and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, his son, and, and, and the Sadducees, and the whole council comes before Peter and John, and they say, by what name, by what power did you do this? And it's interesting, because now they're in a, they're in a situation Peter and John are in the moment of truth. What will they do? Because it's important for us to understand, like they've already made it known that it was by the power of Jesus. Like they've already publicly said this. That's the whole reason they were arrested in the first place, is it not? But here's the thing is, will they stand by what they said or will they change it? What we see is what do they value most? Do they value the gospel or do they value their comfort? And I pose the same question to you. What do you value most? Do you value the gospel or do you value your friends? 
And I would say that if you value your friends over the gospel, then you actually don't value your friends that much. You value yourself and you value your opinion in the eyes of your friends, but you don't value your friends. Because if you did, you would tell them the only thing that can save them eternally. So what do they do? Acts chapter four, verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Here it is. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter boldly proclaims the death and the resurrection of Jesus, knowing that he's going to be hated for it, knowing he's going to receive a lot of flack for it, but he boldly does it. And I want you to notice that how Peter calls them out. You probably noticed it the first time. He says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in case you forgot who that was, it was the guy you crucified a couple months ago. Ouch. Ouch. Like, Peter, why would you do that? Like, why you, gotta, why you gotta point that out? Man, you're making it awkward for all of us now. Like, why you gotta do that, Peter? And here's something you guys need to understand, is that gospel proclamation begins by un- people understanding their need for it. Amen. See, the gospel doesn't mean anything if you don't think you need it. And that's the problem that we have today, is we have a lot of people who don't think they need the gospel. And we have a lot of quote-unquote Christians who don't think that they need it either. That it's just a nice thing they add to their life. See, Peter hits on the fact that Jesus was crucified by them, but all of us in this room, including myself, need to understand that while Jesus may have been crucified by them, Jesus was led to that cross because of your sin and my sin. While he was led to the cross by the intentions of evil men, it was ultimately your sins and my sins that he went to that cross. John 10, Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life for the sheep. Skip ahead even more in John 10, verse 17. It says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. You see, the darkness of my sin is what makes the light of the gospel so beautiful. And if people don't see the fact that they are in desperate need of a savior, they will never value the gospel. If you want to make your life about proclaiming the gospel to people, you need to understand how badly you need it. See, if I was to take out some keys and jingle them into the microphone, that wouldn't be very pleasant. It wouldn't be much of a reason to give you joy in your heart. But if you were in a prison cell, sentenced to be executed, the sound of keys jingling would bring joy to your heart that no sound in the world could drown out. And the reason the gospel is not beautiful to you is because you don't realize just how badly you need it. You cannot proclaim a gospel that you do not love and you cannot love a gospel you don't understand that you need. And then Peter drops a bombshell and he says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And oh, how the world hates that statement. There is no other name, no other name 
If you, ever want, if you want to be made fun of, if you want to be hated, if you want to be scorned or even persecuted, testify that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And that'll do it. See, understand something, guys, that a life that makes a difference, a life that makes a difference, I need everybody to pay attention. I know it's a big room, but I can still see you talk. See, the life that makes a difference The life that makes a difference is a life that doesn't care what other people think. It's a life that is not worried about other people's opinions and other people's acceptance. Throughout church history, Christians have died not because they claimed Jesus was God. Christians have died not because they claimed he was a path to heaven. Christians died because they claimed he was the only God. Christians died because they claimed he was the only path to heaven. People don't have a problem if you preach Jesus. As long as the Jesus you preach, they can place on the altar next to the rest of their idols. People don't have a problem if you preach Jesus as just a side item to the rest of the gods they already have. And perhaps, 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 just maybe, throwing it out there, that the reason your proclaiming of the gospel has not put you at odds with other people is because you preach Jesus in a way that tells them that he can just be one of the gods that you have too. That you may speak of a gospel where Jesus is the only one, but you live a life that shows you worship many gods, and one of them happens to be named Jesus. And some of you need to hear me tonight that you have a sin debt. Please hear me. I know there are people in this room who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. And you need to know that you have a sin debt before God that no amount of prayer, no amount of church attendance, no amount of good works can pay. But only the blood of Jesus received by faith in him can make you right with God. And you're trying to earn Jesus. You're trying to earn salvation. You're trying to earn it. You're trying to be saved by the name of effort. You're trying to be saved by the name of good deeds. You're trying to be saved by the name of your parents' faith. But what we see that Peter says is that there is no other name but the name of Jesus. And please hear me that a life that makes an eternal difference excuse me, starts by trusting in the difference-making power of Jesus. And if you have not made a decision to trust Christ, then that is the first thing that you need to pay attention to. First thing is gospel proclamation. Second thing is gospel confidence. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus there's one thing that stands out in this story to me. It is the boldness and the confidence of Peter and John. In particular, the confidence of Peter. I want you to see something here. Peter and John have been arrested, held overnight, and now they are being questioned by the high priest and the council and the Sadducees. Not too long before this, there was another man that was arrested in a similar way, held overnight in a similar way, questioned by the same men. And he was sentenced to death on a cross. That was Jesus. And where was Peter when that was happening? Peter was outside the place where Jesus was being questioned, huddled up by a fire. 
And a little girl came up and asked him, didn't I see you with that Jesus? And Peter says, I don't even know who he is. And Peter would go on to deny Christ three times. And now, where do we find Peter? Not outside the place, in the place. He is the one on trial. And he does not deny Jesus, but he proclaims Jesus more boldly than ever before. And here's the thing we have to ask ourselves. What is the difference between Peter then and Peter now? I mean, it's not like he's gone through this self-help, you know, self-discovery course. It's not been that long since that night. What is the difference between Peter then and Peter now? And look at it in verse 8. The answer is clear. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the key. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 13, verse 9 through 11. Be on your guard. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. What we are seeing in Acts 4 is what Jesus promised in Mark 13. We are seeing the promises of Jesus being fulfilled. And it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes at salvation that gives the believer boldness and confidence. It is the Holy Spirit that gives the Christian the boldness and the confidence to share the gospel. But what is that confidence in? It's important that we understand that as Christians, we are not confident in ourselves. If you were at Encounter this past week, or two weeks ago, we made a big point on this, that we're not confident in ourselves. Notice that Peter and John were perceived as uneducated common men. They were fishermen from Galilee. There was nothing particularly impressive about Peter and John. And this is something that we need to keep reminding ourselves. Do not limit what God can do with ordinary people. Some of you may think that, man, I, I, what keeps me from making a difference is that like, I don't have the skills that this, pers- this person has. What keeps me from making a difference is that I don't have the education or I don't have the natural giftings that it takes to make a difference. And however, I would say is that what is keeping you from making an eternal difference is the fact that you lack confidence in the power of the gospel and you lack confidence in the power of God and what he can do with anyone. That's the problem. Likewise, I would say that there are people who have all the skills and giftings in the world, but they've rendered themselves useless because all of their confidence is in themselves. There's an author that put it this way, Christians should be the boldest people in the world, not cocky and sure of ourselves, but sure of him. You see, as Christians, our confidence is in the promises of God. And the promises of God are what give us the confidence to be bold when the time calls for it. Peter and John are at a significant point. The very men who sentenced Jesus to death are now questioning them. They're now questioning them and they believe in the promise that uh, that Jesus gave that he would never leave them He would never forsake them. 
And that through his Holy Spirit, he would give them the words to speak. And they stood on those promises. They were willing to look like fools because they believed and they were confident in the promises of God. They stepped down in boldness, knowing that if Jesus' promises weren't true, they were about to look like an idiot. And here's the question I have for you. Do you have that kind of confidence in the promises of Jesus? Or do you always have a plan B in case God fails you? See, the life that makes a difference for Christ is the life that is confident in the promises of God and is confident in the power of the gospel. Now, let's pair this with our first point, right? Because it all, it's all one game plan, but just in different pieces. Let's pair this with the first point. If you want to live a life that matters, make the singular aim of your life, proclaiming the gospel to all that will listen, and in doing so, have total confidence that the God of the gospel is what makes it powerful, not your ability to share it. My favorite author, you know it's coming. A.W. Tozer says, we have a lot of hero worship in the church today. We are magnifying the messenger and consequently minimizing the message. The message should be of such a nature that it overshadows the messenger. It isn't the one that preaches the gospel, but rather it is the gospel that the person preaches that makes all the difference. And the last point which isn't as long, but it's vitally important, is gospel evidence. Now, when I say gospel evidence, some of you may be thinking of, okay, well, you may be thinking of like the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, or, or you may think you, you start going to like an apologetics type way of thinking. And, and I think that is important. I think it's good that we study those things. I think it's important that we teach those things. We have a track on apologetics this year. It's very, very important. But that's not really what I mean here. I want you to see what happens in the passage. Going back to verse 13, it says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. First of all, that's just a powerful statement. Could people recognize that you've been with Jesus? Look at me, guys. If you were put on trial for having been with Jesus, is there enough evidence to prove you guilty? Verse 14, but seeing that the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak any more to anyone in this name. Now, roll with me. The miracle of the healing of the paralyzed man is what gave credibility to the message of the gospel that they preached. You with me? That the reason the gospel that they preached had such credibility was because of the display of the power of the name of Jesus in healing the, the man. And this is the case all throughout the Bible. Go to the Old Testament, Moses, when he says that he's afraid that Pharaoh won't listen to him. And that the people of Israel won't listen to him. What does God say? I will give you the ability to perform signs and wonders so that they will know what you're saying is true. You see this also in the prophets, in Elijah, and Elisha. You see this in the, in the ministry of Jesus. That the purpose of the miracles was to validate the message. Nowhere is this more evident than in the resurrection of Christ. 
See, if Jesus proclaimed to be God and then died on a cross and never got out of that grave, then all of his claims are meaningless. But if he rose from the dead, what does that say about everything that he said? That it's true. You cannot deny the miracle of the resurrection. Just to get a little apologetic with you. Every historian would acknowledge that Jesus was a real person, that Jesus was a real person who was, credit, who was credited with doing amazing miracles. Every historian would say that he was a real man that lived in the first century, that he was crucified on a Roman cross. And everyone understands that the tomb somehow is empty. They've never found the body of Jesus. Somehow it's empty. What you have to do is figure out how. What you'll find is that every possible answer that you give doesn't make sense. Well, the disciples stole the body. Oh, they overthrew two highly trained Roman soldiers who were guard, told to guard it with their life, and if they lost the body, they would be killed for it? Bunch of fishermen figured out how to do that? Oh, well, the Jews took it. Well, the Jews are the ones who put Jesus to death in the first place. Oh, well, he wasn't actually dead. Well, that... Every person who's ever studied history knows that no one has ever survived a crucifixion. You start to run out of answers. But here we see also in the apostles, right, that the miracle that the apostles did is what gave credibility to their message. Now, I'm not saying that to preach the gospel you have to go around performing miracles. That would be a bad uh, application of this text. However, I think that there is a point to be made. That the gospel message, and I'm almost done, please roll with me. The gospel message is validated by the display of gospel power. Now, what is the display of gospel power in the life of a Christian? It is the changed life that comes as a result of it. That is the display of gospel power. You see, in the story of Peter and John, the healing of the paralyzed man, you and I are not Peter and John. We are the paralyzed man who from birth had a disease that no one could cure. From birth... We were one way and it took one miraculous act outside of ourselves that radically changed us to the point to where everyone around us could see something different happened. And if your life bears no evidence, you have to ask yourself, am I actually a Christian? When people should be able to see your life and know that there is something powerful at work in you. They have to see that you're different than the culture around you. You have a joy that the world doesn't have. Perhaps you've changed. Perhaps you aren't the same person that you used to be. What happened? It's the power of the gospel that has changed you. See, the gospel of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive you, but it is also powerful enough to change you. You cannot say that the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to save me but not change me. You can't have it that way. That's not how it works. 
Jesus displays the power of his saving work to the world through the miracle of your changed life. And just as the healing of a paralyzed man was the evidence of the gospel in Acts 3 and 4, the changing of your life is the evidence of the gospel today. This means that we must look at something. If you live your life and you look no different than the world around you, then you totally discredit the gospel that you proclaim. If Peter went to this paralyzed man, said in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walked, and the man stayed there, looked at him, and couldn't move, and then he says, hey, in that same name, here's the gospel. People would have laughed in his face. But we do the same thing every day when we say that the Holy Spirit of God lives within me, but I look just like you. It's no different. It's no different. We discredit the gospel when we live in a way that seems like there's no difference in us. So many of us think that in order to make a difference in the world, I need to be like the world. In order to be like, in order to, to change the world, I need to be liked by the world. I need to be, to be more like the world and act like the world, love the things that the world loves and you need to understand that all you're doing when you do that is giving the world more of a reason not to listen to you. Charles Spurgeon has a quote. He says, the sinner will not convert the sinner. The ungodly man will not convert the ungodly man. And what is more to the point is that the worldly Christian will not convert the world. Display the evidence of the life-changing power of the gospel by living a changed life. And what you will find is that evangelism really isn't that hard. And I'm going to close with this. If you look at the end of the passage, verse 19, it says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When threatened, all Peter and John could say is, look, if you want me to listen to you rather than God, that's between you and him. Don't bring me into that. But here's all I can do. All I can do is just point to the evidence of what I've seen God do. I want you to know, guys, sharing the gospel is you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have a microphone and a stage. All you have to do is to be able to point to the difference that God has made in your life and say there's no other explanation than the saving power of Jesus. And I'll tell you the same in my own life. The things that I have seen God do in my life can be accredited to no one else but the saving power of Jesus. I have seen God change people radically. Living one way, saved by Jesus, totally different. It doesn't happen overnight. But the power of the gospel is powerful nonetheless. And we display this changed life through the way that we live. And let's be honest, guys, some of us in this room are not showing evidence of the gospel. If anything, we would say that our life is just more of a reason for people not to believe in it. But here's the beauty of the grace of Jesus is that there is no sin you have committed that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus on your behalf. 
There is no distance you can run that Jesus cannot run farther. There is no sin you have committed that is more powerful than Jesus' grace for you. And what I am asking you is to stop running. Trust in the grace and the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. And I promise you, like the man who was paralyzed, you will never be the same. Why wait until Thursday night when you can get right with Jesus on Monday night? The last part of that poem says, so when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash?